morning. Welcome. It is such a wonderful pleasure for us all to be here together this morning, to be here to worship our great God, as we have just sang. So many of the songs that we have sang have focused on the, the wonderful blessings that we have that come from God and from the magnificence of God. And we are so very, at least I am, encouraged and lifted up and excited to be here with you this morning. And not only that, but people the world over. People the world over, have we stopped to think about how many have already this day gathered together to worship God? How many in a few, in a few hours will gather together to worship God? How many right now are worshiping God with us, like us, gathered together at this moment? It is a wonderful, wonderful blessing to know God. Can you imagine what life would be like without that? Without that knowledge but there are many in the world today that, that that describes, that don't have the knowledge that we have of God. And that brings terrible consequences with us. If you would, go ahead and open your, uh, your Bibles to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is where we are going to begin this morning. We're going to use this kind of as a springboard to, to start our study. As you turn over there, I want us to consider that a common concept in the world today, if you were to go around and to take a poll of people in this nation, in America on what they would say our relationship with God is like, many would say, you would hear something along the lines of this, well, I believe God has, or I believe America, excuse me, America has turned her back on God. That is something that you would hear quite often if you were to go around and talk to people about what they thought the relationship between those of the people of America and God would be described in that manner. And they would give evidences of this in, in many different ways. They would say things like, well, we have barred him, or we have barred any religious displays that, that might be related to him in our public places. <laughs> Examples of this might be removing the Ten Commandments from our government buildings, our state houses, our courthouses. We have banned the, the use of public prayers in the public school system. When, and even to a religiously incompetent mind, it is easy to see that we have separated ourselves, even looking at just the, the basic concept of separation of church and state. We can see that. We can see that... There's been a separation as a nation from God. And this oftentimes leads to the next thought, the next fear is that us having turned our back on God will cause God to turn his back on us. And I want to suggest there is a very good reason to think this way. Look over in Psalm chapter 9. Psalm chapter 9, this is the passage we're going to use to kind of springboard our, our lesson this morning. Psalm chapter 9 and verse 17 it says, the wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. The fact is, America, by and large, has forgotten God. But this morning, I want to tell you, that doesn't disturb me nearly as much as the fact that the people, even His people, even Christians today, seem to have forgotten God. Now, many people might argue the fact that how can you possibly be a Christian and have forgotten God. I want to say it's quite, quite easy, really. Maybe it's possible that you never knew Him to begin with. Maybe you read a few things in the Bible, and you, you those are some things that I should do, and you, you acted upon the things that you read and that you believed, but you didn't fully have a knowledge of God at that point. Or maybe you did have a pretty good knowledge of God, but over time... Over time, you have let that relationship and that knowledge kind of fade. Maybe more now, instead of having a close relationship with God, it might be better described as a distant acquaintance, you and God. That is the purpose of this study, 
And quite honestly, I think this train of thought will probably carry with us throughout the year. Now, I've said earlier that evangelism is a huge part uh, of, of growth and is going to be a big part of this year, 2016. But growing a body with a deadly virus at its heart, that will only make for more tragedy. We can understand that. If we, if we set out to grow something that is sick, then it's, it's going to just be more, more parts that, that fail as they accumulate. Hosea 4, chapter 6 gives us an idea of this. It says in Hosea 4, chapter 6, God said, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. So yes, this year I'm going to be pushing us towards evangelism. That is a huge part of, of, of the, the work that a church should be involved in. It's a huge part of the work that Christians should involve themselves in. And it's a key part of growing the church. But before we do that, we need to make sure that we take every opportunity to know who it is that we serve. That we make sure that we have a full knowledge of Him so that we can't be said that we are growing a sick congregation. We want to make sure that that can't describe us. So this morning we are going to be looking at three words that tell us a little bit about God. Each one of these words is a piece to a puzzle that when we assemble will help us come to know better who God is. Now, in preparing for this sermon, I, I, we were here at the building one day, and I, I called Holly into the office. She was here at the boys, and I said, Holly, without any warning, I said, the word, word. Define that for me. Define word. Because in all honesty, I couldn't think of a common sense way of defining it. It just completely was blowing my mind. And so I said, Holly, define this word for me. And I'm going to paraphrase her response a little bit. She said, well, word is simply a group of letters arranged in a fashion so that they have meaning." I like that. I was like, well, that, that makes sense. That's easy for me to understand. That kind of helped me to wrap my mind around this idea of, of a word that describes God. Another, another definition I found, uh, looking a little bit further into the Internet, and I thought it was also a pretty good definition, is a word is simply a graphic representation to communicate a meaning. So this morning, I want to look at three words that communicate, graphically describe God to us. And those three words that I want to look at are the created word, the written word, and the living word. <clears throat> so let's begin with the created word. If you would, go ahead. Well, you're in Psalms. Just flip over a few passages to Psalms 19. Psalms 19, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> Psalms 19, verses 1 through 4. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone, throughout, or has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun. This passage might sound just a little bit familiar, and, might be, and is quite similar to a passage found over in Romans. The very beginning of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. I want to say to you that both of these passages... Both of these passages are describing, they're discussing evidences of God. Evidences, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty important thing for us today in this world. We are always looking for evidences of anything. 
We want to be 100% sure of so many things, so we want to find all the evidence we can find on any topic. Well, these passages are telling us that there are evidences of God. Evidence is seen in His creation. His creation to, gives us evidences that there must have been a creator. If you consider for a moment the, the cabinets in your house, if you go into your kitchen or your bathroom, you have cabinets that you store your stuff in. Those cabinets tell us that there must have been a carpenter to build those cabinets. Someone who went out and maybe sourced the lumber and cut it to dimensions and, and put it together, gluing it and screwing it together, staining it. It tells us somebody put some effort into creating those cabinets. Or maybe a better example, the watch that many, many people have on their wrists. I'm not talking about the digital watches, although those are impressive in themselves, but the, the, the good old-fashioned analog watches that when you take them apart, you see they're full of cogs and springs and sprockets and gears and all sorts of little gizmos that when they work together, they function seamlessly and, and just are really a mechanically a thing of beauty. And what does a watch tell us? We look at that watch and it just screams to us that it had a watchmaker. It wasn't like someone just took their hands into a bin of parts and threw them in the air and poof, a watch was formed. We can see that through the creation, the, the amazing and, and, and huge things that are within our, our own sight, and some things that are even without our sight. We talked a couple Sundays ago about the, the human body and about the amazing amount of, of atoms and things that even in class this morning talking about the, the proteins that make up the body, all these amazing things that we can't see. Or if we step outside of the human body, look out into creation, maybe even out into the cosmos. I, I, I heard a guy talking the other day about the size of our sun. And it just blew my mind, really, the size of our sun. When we look at our sun, if we were to equivalent it to, to try and help us understand the size, we would have to scale it down a little bit and we would have to make, as our scale, the earth a golf ball. So if we have a golf ball, and earth is the size of a golf ball now, the sun would be 15 feet wide if the earth was a golf ball. And I thought, well, that was, that's pretty amazing. That is pretty big. He said, in fact, the, the light and the heat that comes off that sun, the light that is, that is pushed away from that sun and reaches the surface of this earth, it takes, it takes eight minutes for that light to reach the surface of the earth. So the light that you see now, it left the sun eight minutes ago. And again, I thought, wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. But he went even farther and said that some of the biggest stars in our galaxy, not going out into the whole universe, but in our little cul-de-sac that we call the cosmos, here in the Milky Way galaxy, it's one of the biggest stars in this galaxy. If you were to put it on a, on a chart, you couldn't walk up with a Sharpie and make a dot small enough to represent the sun, which again is infinitely, just, it's just a huge amount bigger than the earth. And in fact, he said if we go back to our, dis, our, our, our uh, graphic representation, if we go back to our golf ball example, and our golf ball is the earth, we would have to go out to California, to the Golden Gate Bridge, and we would have to set the golf ball on one side of the Golden Gate Bridge, we'd have to cross the Golden Gate Bridge, and we'd have to go up into the mountain so we could get a good view of it, and then we would follow the Golden Gate Bridge from the beginning all the way to the end. And then we would just imagine a second one, follow it to the beginning all the way to the end. And that would be the diameter of the largest star in our galaxy. And then we would follow it all the way back to that golf ball. And on that golf ball, somewhere is us standing on Earth. And on us, somewhere, is a little tiny molecule that is so small 
that it would take literally billions and billions of them to fill our human body. And when I think of the magnitude of God's creation, it screams to me that there is a creator. None of these things were just happenstance. Can you imagine any of these things from a watch all the way to the magnificent feats that are in our universe making themselves? But there's more that we can see than just the creation, that there is a creator. We can see design in his creation. We can see it and we can see that it is perfect. In fact, we make so many assumptions and estimations based off the unchanging laws <clears throat> that God has designed. The sun is predictable. We know that almost down to the minute when it is going to rise in the east, when it's going to set in the west. Likewise, the moon, we are uh, always aware of what stage it is in, how much of the moon we are going to see, when it is going to be passing over. So much of this... We know about because we have studied it through science. One thing that we have studied is, is gravity. Gravity is an amazing thing to me. There's these, uh, these guys down in Florida. I've, I've jokingly called them the hillbillies of Florida that like to scrap little boxes to rockets and send them up into space. They call themselves NASA. I think that those guys right there are awesome. I just love the things that they do because that is just pyrotechnics is just a huge part of my life. I love 4th of July and fireworks. So the idea of taking something and putting it on a rocket with all this jet fuel and igniting that sucker and sending it up into space, that's cool to me. I really just think that's awesome. But what's even better than that is what they base all that off of. When they send that satellite on the end of that rocket up into space and they let it go, they literally let it go. They just push it off on its path and they can know down to the second when it's going to pass directly overhead because it bases its assumptions. They've based all their calculations off of gravity, which God designed, which is unchanging, which is perfect. And there is so much that that tells us. And again, the fact that we have design shows that there must be a design or. Secondly, or maybe thirdly, what about personality? Can we imagine what this life would be like if there was no personality? And we see the personality that is around all of us. And, and can we imagine personality coming, being given to us from no person at all? Well, this should show us the personality that we each and every one of us has. And each one of them is so different. It should tell us that we, we serve a God who is a person. That is to say, in short, that he is personal. He has a personality of his own. Now, I've often said that I know God has a personality because I know he has a sense of humor because I remember in school and we studied this guy. That's a platypus. I've always said that there is no way God doesn't have a personality. There's no way he doesn't have humor if he could create a goofy-looking thing like that. A thing that somehow looks kind of like a, a mix between an otter and a duck. It's a mammal, but it lays eggs, which is so weird to me. It doesn't seem right. I've always kind of joked and said that. I, I know the platypus must prove in some way that God has a sense of humor. When we look at just the, the differences in all of us, the differences in my personality to Logan's, to Nellie's, to anybody in this room, all these amazing and beautiful personalities that we have, can we honestly look at that and say that they come from nothing or that they must originate from a person who gave them to us? Or secondly, I would ask you about morality. Is it, it is impossible to argue that we don't have morality. It is impossible to argue that there aren't some absolute truths in this world. Ever since every civilization since the beginning of time has had some view of morality. 
Now, they have all uh, some ways changed here and there. There's some things that they didn't hold to that maybe we would say is immoral, that they would say, no, it wasn't. But in every civilization, there were some things that were just simply wrong, you don't do, and there were some things that were just simply right, something that we should do. Where does the morality come from if not from a moral being which gave it to us? What I'm saying is if in God's creation, if he created all of this, we can draw some conclusions about God from these creations. One of the conclusions we can draw is that he is powerful. He is immensely powerful and, and immensely big. The God that created this cosmos, created these huge stars, and created these infinitely tiny little particles within my, our cells has got to be a very powerful and a very big God. We can also tell that he is super intelligent. Even some of the greatest minds that we would say of this day based their assumptions and their calculations off of things that he created and he set in motion in the beginning. Not only is he super intelligent, but the things that he has created have he created perfectly. We can tell again that he is a person. That is to say he is personal to us and he is moral. But I do want to point this, and I need to stress this point. Knowing the created doesn't equal fully knowing God. Many of the Greek philosophers, they, they, they came real close to knowing God with just the created word. But we have to realize that it can only get you so close. Turn over to, to second, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 18 through 21. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Today, many claim that they can know God through His created Word. They claim to know God through what they see in nature, through what they see inside the human body, inside of our, our universe and what they perceive. And the fact is, we can draw some very real conclusions about the Creator through His work but we can't fully know him. Let me give you another example of this. This right here is a stylus. It looks like a pen, but it's not a pen. If I mark all over my Bible with it, it won't make a mark. But we can know some things about the creator of this stylus. One thing we can know about the creator of this stylus is that he was very smart. Incredibly smart. If I was to unscrew the top and take the batteries out, what we'd find shoved down inside this little shell of aluminum and plastic are all sorts of, of chips and computer boards and little processors that take the information that we put into it through writing, compress that information, and spit it out onto a computer in a digital form. Now, I could probably have three lifetimes, maybe four. I'm sure I'd get it by the fifth one. But it would take me forever to figure out how on earth they did that. They're incredibly smart to be able to design this. I can also draw another conclusion about the creator of this stylus. They had a desire to, to create a bond between humanity and technology. They wanted to create a closer relationship to how we interact with things such as this computer right here. 
using a stylus, stylus I can input information on this computer. I can, I can use it like a laser pointer and you know, do stuff like that. I, there are so many different things that I can do with this stylus that was created by this one person who created this thing. It shows that they had a, a, a desire to do that, to link us closer together, whether that be for the good or for, or for the better or the worse of civilization, I don't know. But still, we can draw that conclusion. Another conclusion I can draw from this is that they had an eye for detail. The stylus fits very well in my hand. The buttons are close where I can use them, and they have a great functionality with what they were intended to function with. All these things aside, we can know a little bit about who created this thing, but we can't have a personal knowledge of him. I can't know his likes or his dislikes. I can't know what it was that, that caused him to want to create this uh, 100%. I can't know what drove him. I can't know if he even likes his creation. I can't know if he had children. If he had a spouse, what he desires of them, what he looks for, I can't even know if he's a he. I can't know if it's male or female who created the stylus. All this is said to show that there are some very real conclusions, very tangible things that we can draw from viewing the creation, from viewing the created. But we can't have a full knowledge of the creator. So God provided more than just the created word. He provided the written word. Look over with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Many of you I know are already, already putting in your mind where we're going here. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 and verse 17. A passage we know very well. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This passage is saying is God literally given us words written by men which were inspired. Some translations say we're literally God-breathed. And I want us to stop and take a, a, just a moment to, to really appreciate how beautiful those words are. The same, the same breath that spoke all of creation into existence is the same breath that, that breathed these words down so that we could have a record of them. The same great God that created this just huge universe and these huge things that are in it and these minuscule things that are within us and all these amazing complexities that we can see is the same God that had a desire to leave some written knowledge so that we could have. And what this does is it goes beyond nature. And it tells us more that, that we can understand. It tells us more about God. One of the things it tells us is that God is involved with man. Nature doesn't prove this. Nothing in nature shows God had ever, ever had an intention to interact, to talk with, to love man. This isn't shown in nature, but he did. He interacted with Adam in the garden. He had a relationship with Noah, saved him and his family from the flood. He was with Abraham guided him away from his land into a, a, into a completely foreign land and promised to give it to his descendants. Speaking of the nation of Israel, there was a huge interaction with them. He gave them the Ten Commandments, gave them a law to follow. And in fact, he told them that if they would obey that law, not only did he told them, he, he, he kept up his promise, he protected them when they were obedient. And he allowed them to suffer when they weren't. In fact, if we study his written word, we see some aspects of God here that are never made evident in nature. We see that God loves man. 
We see that God is very, very patient with him, but we also see that he is a wrathful God. And he is willing to punish those who are disobedient to him, but he does so in a manner full of righteousness, full of grace, and full of mercy. All of this is evident in just the simple involvement that is recorded for us of man. But we see beyond that, beyond being just involved with man, we see that God had a purpose for man. If we want to flip back to the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 14, excuse me, Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 44. We're going to read some words here that I think we'll very quickly draw a connection to. And verse 44 says, For I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourself therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. And continuing on in 45, For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now let's turn over to Leviticus chapter 19. 19 and verse 2, again, Speak to all the congregation of sons of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God had a plan then to the, to the children of Israel. God has a plan to us for us this day. I bet you can guess what that plan is, even for us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 spells it out very clearly so we don't have to guess. In verse 15 he says, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. You know, I wonder, might one reason be that many people don't want to study the written word and don't want to believe and furthermore act like God is a personal God. God is a caring God who desires for them to behave in according to his will because that would mean that they would have to be accountable to him. If all we had was the created word, we would have no personal knowledge of God. He would be nothing more than this just mute point for us to argue about. And that's exactly what he has become for so many today. That's what he was for many in the past. Questions like, what is he like? Well, I don't know. What does he want? I don't know. What should I be doing with my life? Whatever you want to do. These are the consequences of a poor knowledge of God. We can have no way of knowing who he is. We can have no way of knowing what he, what he wants. And all these things, having that knowledge, it gives us a, a desire to seek out what he wants and then to do it through a better understanding of him. And so I thank God that he is a personal God. I thank God that he has given us this holy and inspired written word. But it also means that he does have a will for us. And that also means that he is going to hold us accountable to that will. Now it's interesting to me to see how many people in the world today will believe in aliens from outer space, even though there is little to no evidence that they exist. Now, I want to stop right here and say that if you come up to me after the sermon is over, after service is over, and want to argue the fact that aliens exist, you've completely missed the point of this example. That's not what I'm trying to say. That's not what I'm trying to make the argument about. But, but so many today do believe in the fact that aliens exist, even though there is little evidence to prove it. And I would ask myself, and I would ask them, what's the bearing? What is the bearing on someone in the existence of aliens? Does that have any bearing on you at all? The answer to that is no, 
Absolutely none. There is no bearing. Even if they do exist, they have not shown that they have anything to do with you. They have not shown that they have any relationship, no desires, no will for you. But when we stop and step back and say, God, does God exist? Yes, he does. Well, to believe in God and to believe that he exists, it's, it's, it's greater than, excuse me, to believe in God is greater than simply believing just that he exists. Because he has a bearing on us. Because he has interacted with us. He has given us knowledge to know that he is the one that created us. He has given us the knowledge to know that he expects something from us, holiness. He's given us the knowledge to know that he is going to hold us accountable. And so believing in God means that you have to live your life viewed through the reality of that lens. But this leads to a problem. This leads to a problem because God has said, Be holy, for I am holy. Excuse me. And that's leading many people to kind of have an attitude, something like this. And say, well, that's, that's pretty easy for you to say, God. It's pretty easy for you to command us to be holy. You know, you, you sit up there on your throne and you have no idea what it's like to live on this earth. You don't feel the pain and the sorrow that we endure on a regular basis. Life on this earth is hard. It's hard enough when you don't even calculate the fact that you got Satan just crouching around every turn, waiting to pounce, waiting to devour. Yeah, it would be really easy to be holy if we were where you are. But we can't say that, can we? Because more than just the written word, God has given us the living word. Turn over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, some... Incredibly beautiful words are recording for, recorded for us in these first three verses of John chapter 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. If we skip down just a little bit further, we will see in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and of truth. In fact, if we continued on, we would see even in verse 17 that the Word, who became flesh, was given a name. His name was Jesus. The Word became flesh, born as a baby, into a world full of hate, a world full of death, poverty, sickness, and sorrow. In fact, it's born into the same world that we live in today. All these things that we deal with today. But notice what it says in verse 18. The latter part of verse 18. Jesus, the Word who became flesh, born into our world. Jesus, He has explained Him. That is God. Jesus has explained God. Now we know that God is spirit. Which means that you can't see Him. He is invisible. How can we, how can we know more about him if we can't see him. Isn't that what science has told us? I remember back in high school when we were studying about the, the, the silverback gorillas, and they said that to know more about the silverback gorillas, scientists had to observe the silverback gorillas. They had to get into their, their habitat, even living among them, to observe how they acted, what were their likes and their dislikes, how was it that they placed themselves on a, on a scale of dominance, they observed all these things, and that is a key part of, of the scientific pattern 
for coming up with things. We observe things. So how can we observe God who is spirit? John 14 verse 9 answers this question question for us. John 14 verse 9, Jesus answered that question. When he said, when he said, Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you? And yet you have not come to me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? He who has seen me has seen the Father. What did he mean by that? He meant by that was we can observe God. We can study His qualities, which can all be found and made up within Jesus. All this is found in the character of Jesus. So when we look at Jesus' life, we study His life and we see God's holiness. Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. He displayed God's purity, God's righteousness, God's goodness. We take it a step farther. More so in just His life, we can study His death. In His death, we see God's wrath. I want to think for a minute about a judge. A judge who is, who is set down on, on, on his judgment seat. He's set down and, the, and before him is a criminal. And maybe this criminal who is on trial is someone that he loves. It's someone that he admires, a friend, a family member even. Someone very close to him. But if that judge is to be considered righteous, if that judge is to be considered innocent, he must demand a penalty be paid for whatever crime has been committed regardless of of the relationship he has with that one who has committed the crime. We understand that. We call that the good buddy system when it doesn't work that way. Someone goes before the judge and they say, oh, I, we got a good relationship. He's going he's gonna to wink an eye at me and we'll, we'll go on. We call that another word. We call it corrupt, crooked. So when we step back and we look at God, we understand that we stood before God guilty. And in His holiness, He has said the wages of sin is death. And so He administered the punishment. He took the punishment and He poured it out upon Himself. He poured it out upon His Son, Jesus, His only Son. And so at the cross, perhaps better than anywhere else, we see some of the best descriptions of God and His qualities. But it doesn't stop there. And so thankfully... So thankfully it doesn't, because in his resurrection we see even more of the qualities of God. Look over in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 and in verse 29. <clears throat> Here we see the faithfulness of God. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he, has a pro he was a prophet... And knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. He looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of Christ. That he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, raised, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. To fulfill a promise made to David so many years before, God raises Jesus up from the dead. And set him on his throne. That's how sincere God's promises are. They are not bound by time. 
There is not a statute of limitations that says, okay, you're, you're no longer held to that promise. They are not bound by death. Raising Jesus up from the dead to fulfill the promise that He made to David. And what we can see in this is that God is faithful. Always. Every time. When God made a promise, if it was unconditional, God kept the promise. And even if there were conditions set upon that promise, if man kept his conditions, God kept up his end of the bargain. So in Christ Jesus, we see all these amazing properties of God. We see God's holiness, His goodness, His truthfulness. We see His wrath, His righteousness. We see His mercy and His grace, His long-suffering. And we see His faithfulness. All of these, again, seen in Jesus. This morning, I'm trying to drive home the point that God has given us every opportunity to know Him. It shows in His creation. It shows in His written Word, the Bible. And so it shows in the living Word, His Son, Jesus the Christ. So having looked at all this, I want to look at four questions, and then the sermon will be yours. Just four simple questions that I would like to, us to ask ourselves, having understand all these, these things that we've talked about. The first one is, how can we fail to love God? He has shown how He created us. He has shown how He involved Himself in our lives. And when I say involved Himself in our lives, I mean He got tangled up in our lives. He didn't just sporadically check in on us to see what was going on. God immersed Himself into this, this simple being that He created called man. In fact, He gave His own Son to become a man and then to be sacrificed for the sins that man, that we committed. How can we fail to not get involved with Him? How can we fail to not tangle ourselves up with Him? How can we fail to not make sacrifices in our own lives, such as our wants, our desires for Him? In short, how can we fail to love God? Second question is, how can we fail to worship God? This morning, as Carl led us in song, we offered up praises to Him, our Creator, our Sustainer. We have been led in prayers to guide our hearts and minds in, in, in approaching His throne and in, in, in petition. Can we ever say that this most powerful, super intelligent being who has perfectly designed you and me and everything in this world that we can see with the intention that it worship Him and give praise back to Him, how can we ever say that I'm just not interested in doing that today? How can we ever say I've had enough of that? How can we ever say that, God, I feel like I've given you your, your just deserves? Can we ever say, God, I feel like you've given you the worship that you deserve? No, we can't. Because He deserves so much more than what we could ever possibly give. Let's give Him as much as we can then. How can we fail to worship God? The next question is, how can we fail to fear Him? And many people would say, well, it's not possible for me to fear God and love God at the same time. And that's, a, that's because they have a misunderstanding of the word fear that is so often used in the Bible. This word fear is not the, the fear of spiders type of fear. It's not the fear of the dark type of fear. In fact, it is a fear that is filled with reverence, with love. <clears throat> My boys 
My boys have a fear of me and Holly. They fear not pleasing us. It is not because they are uh, afraid of getting a spanking. In fact, many times that they do something that is displeasing to us, it doesn't necessarily lead to a spanking. They're afraid of pleasing us because they, they have seen how much we desire them to please us, and that pleases them. They desire to do that. They have a longing to make us happy. And even the smallest of ways, and even the most insignificant of ways, they get joy from giving us joy. And that's in a flawed human relationship where we're not perfect and we make all sorts of mistakes and we don't deserve that sort of love. We don't deserve that sort of fear. But God, God is perfect. And God does, does deserve that sort of fear. And yes, there is a, a, a fear of an eternal damnation. There is this fear of a punishment that oftentimes guides our thoughts, especially at a very immature age. An immature level. But more importantly, for one who truly knows God, we should have this desire to please Him. Not because of what might happen if we don't, but because He is infinitely worthy of it. He is worthy of us trying to please Him. He is worthy of our fear. And then lastly, the question I would ask is, how can we fail to obey Him? We see Him in creation. We see Him in His written Word. We see Him through His Son. We discover that through the knowledge of Him, we discover that He has a plan for us. He has a plan for you. How can we not obey His will for us? One of the hardest things for me to understand is how a Christian, someone who has already been baptized, so oftentimes when we focus on obedience, it's on those who, who haven't been baptized yet. We say you need to be obedient to the Gospel. It's hard for me to understand how someone who has already been baptized, has already made those first steps, how they can claim to believe in God, how they can claim to know God, how they can claim to ever know God and not be obedient to Him. Because if we truly knew God, we wouldn't question for a second the worthiness of following His commands and we wouldn't need someone to tell us, you should do this or you should do that. Because we would know God. We would know what He wanted and we would have a desire, a burning, motivating desire to obey everything He has called for us to do. Like I said, there's four questions and the lesson was yours. I hope that you have spent this time this morning truly inquiring within yourselves, do I really know God? This morning we've taken the first steps in getting to know Him. And if you have been failing in any of the ways that we just mentioned here, if any of these questions you ask and say that, yeah, I've, I've kind of been struggling with that. I've not been doing that very well. I would like to say that you, you would do well to place some doubts on your knowledge of the Lord. And so maybe this morning you're saying, I, you know what? I want to get to know God better. I want to get to know Him and have a better relationship with Him. The only way that we can do that, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> The only way that we can do that is through time spent studying the ways He revealed Himself to us. Take time in God's creation. It is important. Just because we can't come to a full knowledge of Him doesn't mean that we should just write it off. In fact, go out into His creation. Go to the gorge. Go out to your back deck on a starry night. Go out and look at all the amazing things that God has created. And know what? Don't just do it. 
just to look at it. Go out with a notebook and write some things down that you see. Write some things down that amaze you and determine something about God just in His creation alone. I guarantee you, you will, you will come to some surprising realizations just in looking at His creation. But then further than that, spend some time in His written Word. Study it. And again, just like with creation, get out a notebook. Write some things down. Even if you write the words that are written, commit them to your memory. Psalm 119 verse 11. David said, Your word I have treasured or stored up in my heart that I may not sin against you. Do you honestly think that David could say these words simply because he knew the words that were written or because that he had studied them and he knew who they came from? He knew more about God through studying just even in His written Word. And then lastly, and, and, and probably most importantly, if we're going to study anything, study Jesus. Find the qualities of God that are displayed in His life. When you know God, those four questions, the, the love, the worship, the fear, the obedience, those things will come secondhand. They will not be a problem when you have a fully understanding knowledge of God. This morning, if you have not, through obedience, become a child of God, I would ask you, I would ask you, do you know God? You should. You should know that He is patient and that He is longing for, for His children to come to Him. We should also know that He is not going to wait forever. And likewise, maybe you've already made those first steps of faith. I, I, I call it that for a reason. Because it is a step. Sometimes we, we, we put salvation up on a pedestal. We say we just got to jump up on the pedestal and we're there. Salvation is much more like a path that we wander down. That, we've, that we walk down and this first step of faith through baptism, it literally is that. It is the first step on a long road that we must remain diligent on. Maybe you look at your life and you see that I have kind of, I've kind of quit walking down that path. I've become less active in the kingdom. Maybe you can tell that in this life you start to place more emphasis on this world rather than the, the, the next. And again, I would ask you, do you know God? We need to repent of our sins. We need to get back to a life of service to Him. If any of these things describe you this morning, or if there is some other way in which we can help you in your service to the Lord and your walk with Him, I would encourage you, don't wait. Come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.